it's not enough to just teach the language to people. It's really important to have opportunities to use it or discuss it in different ways. Words travel many paths. Welcome to El Ponte, the Ladino podcast about bridging cultures and cultivating connections. My name's Ivy. My name is Max. And we are your hosts. And in today's episode, we'll be speaking with Professor Brian Kirshen. Uh, Brian is a good friend of mine, and I know him for many years from Los Angeles. But now he's an associate professor of Spanish and linguistics at Binghamton University in New York. Uh, he's the director of the National Authority of Ladino's International Delegation, Oshadarim. And he also runs the Ladino Linguist Platform, where he has taught dozens of sections of Judeo-Spanish since the onset of the COVID pandemic. And at Binghamton, he also co-directs Ladino Collaboratory with Professor Dina Danon. We're so excited to be speaking with Professor Kirshen, and I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Yeah, enjoy. What led you to Ladino? So, unlike both of you, um, I am not from a Sephardic family. Uh, my family is fully Ashkenazi. Um, you know, I grew up with lots of Yiddish in the family or phrases or words and, you know, typical Bubby, so to speak, if there is such a thing. Um, but early on, you know, I... I became very interested in languages through Hebrew school and then later in just junior high and high school studying different languages. And like the story goes with actually many people who are not Sephardic, uh, eventually learning that there's a language called Ladino, um, which incorporates other languages that, you know, some of which I studied was interesting, enticing. Um, and as my professor explains, uh, even exotic, which, you know, there's a lot of that, that at least um, at the beginning. And then you realize, well, it's just a language, right? Like every other language, but a special one at that. But nevertheless, you know, growing up, um, I went to an Ashkenazi synagogue and we had one Sephardic family and they were always the other, you know, the other in the synagogue that everyone wanted to learn more about and that no one knew about. Um, and so I've always just been interested. And then finally, when I had the opportunity in, in, at the university level to learn more and, and to kind of take things into my own direction, it was really a wonderful opportunity. So even though I'm not Sephardic, I've definitely tried to just em embrace and just learn, right? Learn a lot about the culture, the history, and of course, the language. It's amazing. And now yeah. you teach it. Yeah. I mean, so it's interesting for me. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a professor of Spanish, which is not my native language either. That's a language that I learned as a second language, essentially. So I'm, I've been quite familiar with, you know, learning languages and then eventually maybe, you know, teach, even teaching them. So that's what I've been doing for, in some ways, for the past 15 years is teaching Spanish. And um, yes, but as far as Ladino, um, you know, the learner becomes the teacher at some point, although never stops learning. Um, and I'm proud to say that because it's, it's, you know, with languages, it's always a process, a continued process, but I've had, I have had the opportunity, uh, and just the privilege to get to share my interest and passion, um, uh, for this language with many others. 
Yeah. So you did you come from Spanish, like academic interest, or you went right into Ladino? So initially, I was interested in Spanish literature, and then I became interested in second language acquisition and just pedagogy and just teaching foreign languages in general. Uh, and then I started to just think a little bit more about my interest in language and, and shifted a little bit to just linguistics and the field of linguistics. And, you know, it was really in um, the start of graduate school when I tried to focus in on exactly what to study. And, you know, um, that's the million dollar question. What does one study? Um, and, you know, what do you choose? But for me, it was something, it was a way for me to really uh, connect with Judaism because, you know, at some points, I'm more observant than others, and, um, um, but it was a way for me to connect with Judaism in a very different way, considering that I'm not Sephardic, and also stay true to my interest in language uh, and utilize the languages that I've already studied and branch out a bit more. But um, so it was a way to kind of merge personal interests with academic interests. That's awesome. Which languages have you studied? Um, so other than, so Spanish and Hebrew, um, Italian, Portuguese, um, Arabic for several years, um, and just a little bit of some others too, but those are the, the primary ones. And right now I'm actually, for the first time ever, one of my Ladino students actually uh, gifted me um, a course in Yiddish. So it's actually been really meaningful. I've never taken a Yiddish course before, and I'm doing that now through the worker circle. Um, and it's it's very it's a great experience because if there ever were a heritage language in my world, it would be Yiddish. And, you know, it's just the words and sayings that I grew up with. And it's been really revealing for me to kind of experience that um, an enjoyable experience as well. How wow. beautiful. Yeah. Don't leave us. Don't leave Ladino. Uh, <laughs> no, you should. You definitely like no. explore all of the things. That's the whole I'm not leaving. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but it's an experiment in some ways because I work with so many people. I mean, this is not new, but for me, it's just a personal experience that is, is a little bit revealing in the sense that I work with so many heritage speakers of Spanish or Ladino or whatnot. Um, and just the excitement that they get when they are studying the language of their family. Um, it's real, right? And we know that, but it's uh, it's nice to experience firsthand if you have the opportunity, whatever the language may be. Yeah, I'm glad that you're getting that. That's exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, speaking to, um, like, teaching and working with heritage speakers, um, what has your experience been like working with, you know, the Ladino community in general and um, working with the language? I mean, you said it's been 15 years. So if you have any insights over that whole, that big time frame. That big time frame. Mm -hmm. Don't age him. It's okay. It's okay. I used to be the Mancevo, right? Among, you know, everybody. And now there's other Mancevos, which is a good thing. Like, may there continue to be Mancevos, Mancevas, like in the group that are continuing to express interest in, in um, the language. And, and now, of course, the two of you, Mancevos, Jovenes, right? Uh, Sephardim, which is actually so important. And I love that, right? Especially in your... Um, your introductory podcast that you had when you both explained your origins and whatnot and why you're doing this. It's so important to have a variety of people working in this field, so to speak, or in this language, um, which is personal for so many. And it's so great and really important to have Sephardim on board also with all these initiatives, right? So I, I, I love that and I really appreciate that. Um, and it's just, it's so meaningful. So congratulations. 
Um, as far as, you know, my time with Ladino and, you know, in the beginning, um, just you learn so much uh, as far as, you know, what to call this language, how to work with speakers of the language, uh, what does it even mean to be a speaker of the language. A lot of my work as a linguist deals with the field work and going out there and meeting people and interviewing them and asking them all sorts of questions to um, collect data, essentially, and analyze speech in, in different ways and, and see how that uh, see how language is used and for what purposes um, with variation and all. Um, but I realized, you know, the community, the Sephardic community, at least, you know, starting in Los Angeles and then working my way to many other places has been so welcoming everywhere. And um, it's been an extremely pleasant experience. You know, you go for a meeting to speak to someone, to learn a little bit about their life story. And, you know, you schedule a half an hour meeting and it becomes a two and a half hour meeting because they bring out the boyos, borecas, bulemas, bichotos, baklava, and probably some raki. And it's like, you almost feel part of the family already. And I'm like, wow. Um, and that was something that really just opened up my eyes in many ways, at least when I started in, in Los Angeles doing the brunt of the, the work, at least in the beginning, um, because I realized, you know, I didn't even care if this would amount to like a job in the future or, you know, research, you know, published papers. I was like, this is really interesting and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now. Uh, and that's not always the case for graduate students or students in general or people in the world, you know, who work in, right? So I was having a great time. And the really thing, the, the wonderful thing for me is that I'm still having a really wonderful time meeting speakers and um, working with them, learning from them, teaching them, and of course, the Sephardic cuisine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The listeners can't see it, but Brian has a great big smile on his face. So yeah. you, could, we, you yeah. can believe him. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Um, that's great. That's amazing. Um, I'm glad that it's still giving you like that inspiration and that joy and that discovery. Um, I have a question in terms of, you know, you talk about field work and going out to meet speakers. Where are you meeting these speakers? Is this just in Los Angeles, just in New York? You're New York based at the moment for, for yeah. listeners. Um, so how are you connecting with speakers as it seems that Ladino speakers are worldwide as we're learning so what's that like they are um you know in the beginning i was taking somewhat of a snowball effect approach where you know one speaker recommends another speaker and then it kind of trickles down in that way um based on just recommendation and that's what it started with um i've been able to at least within the united states you know do a nice amount of field work and you know just meeting communities you know in los angeles in seattle in South Florida, you know, the Miami, Palm Beach, um, Boynton Beach area, and then also in New York uh, City. So with, that's within the United States. There's clearly other pockets of Sephardic communities within the country as well. Uh, but those are the main four, the largest four and the, the main four that I've had the chance to work with. But I'm also in touch with, um, you know, several years ago, actually, when I was a graduate student, usually I had the opportunity to team up with someone to do a documentary uh, about the community in Bosnia and Sarajevo. So that was an interesting and, and wonderful experience, even though it was a heavy um, topic in regard to exploration of the language and Holocaust survivors and whatnot. Um, but I'm also very connected to um, all that's going on in Israel um, with the National Authority of Ladino there. Um, and even though it's the National Authority of Ladino in Israel, uh, one of their 
recent initiatives in recent years was to create a group of delegates to kind of represent their communities and bring information back to them um, and known as the Shadorim. So I'm actually the director of that group. And it just gives me the chance to work with speakers and educators and stakeholders um, of Sephardic communities trying to still preserve and promote their language around the world. So it's been a really great experience to learn from each other, to teach each other, to collaborate on certain projects. So we're pretty well connected and um, it's nice to see what everyone has been doing. Um, and of course, other than like the physical communities, there's such a vibrant community, if we could call it that, online. Um, and obviously this started with Ladino Comunita in many ways, the online forum but it has manifested itself in a variety of ways, uh, especially since the onset of the pandemic. Yeah. And you've been part of that, um, that like, pandemic era rise in Lidino's presence online and teaching it, right? I took yes. a class with you. Yeah. That's, how I, I, that's how I know you is I took an, a Ladino class with you. It was amazing. You're a fen- phenomenal teacher. <laughs> Thank you. Merci mucho. Um, I, I have met so many wonderful people. I never know to call them my students or just learners or whatnot, because this is something that I do on my own time. It's not affiliated with my university. It's on my breaks, like during the summer, during the winter um, break that I, that I run some of these sessions. Uh, and I, yeah, it was, it was really cool to work with you. And even I had my sister, I think, in your class uh, who wanted to be like, what is my brother doing? Right. Um, So it was really nice. And I think it was really early on Sundays that you participated and early in New York on Sunday, even earlier in LA. Um, But nevertheless, yeah, at the onset of the pandemic, uh, the Sephardic Brotherhood of America reached out uh, wanting to offer different courses. And one of them was just a weekly Ladino course. And, you know, in my mind, I always think about Ladino. I'm always interested in Ladino. You know, we had the UC Ladino program at UCLA. I also got to teach different community members, you know, through the Skirball Fellowship, which I know, Max, you have been participating in in, uh, in different ways. Um, and, but I, you know, one of my first thoughts was, you know, I'll, I would love to do this, but is there going to be interest, uh, especially with everything going on? And long story short, of course, we know that there were, there's a lot of interest. Um, hundreds of people, you know, just at the start, when I think there was a lot of excitement about just the idea of Latino online. Um, I'm not the first to have done it, but it was just, it was quite the moment. Um, and yeah, there were hundreds of people that would log in. Um, it was an experience, uh, an experiment in some ways for me, um, a great opportunity, but you know, I also realized that there's no way to actually personally connect with hundreds of people in the same zoom room at the same time, all different levels. And that's when I kind of thought I, this is a great opportunity and a moment to, uh, offer a variety of levels and work with as many people as possible from around the world. But I have met so many wonderful people, um, Sephardim, non-Sephardim, people who studied language were Jewish, who are not Jewish. There's so many reasons why people come to Ladino and um, take classes with me, with other people. There's a variety of people who are teaching the language and it's really nice to see. We share our students in many cases. We share ideas in many cases and it's a, it's a large community, but it's a tight-knit one. Do you think that there's a, a standardized version of Ladino? It's like how do you decide what kind of Ladino you yeah. teach? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question in some ways. <laughs> um, so... 
you know, standardization, I think about that, yeah, in regard to teaching, in regard to orthography, for example, this is something Max mentioned in his, uh, the first podcast that, you know, Ladino is most typically written today using Latin characters, just like the same alphabet we would use for English, essentially, right? Uh, but that wasn't how it was for centuries. It would be some sort of variety of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Um, for all sorts of reasons that switched. Um, but it's been pretty standardized despite some variation, right? And we do have some standard uh, system today that many, although not all, use in, um, in different varieties. Ladino, Judeo-Spanish of the former Ottoman world has its variety uh, in writing. Haketia, the Judeo-Spanish from Morocco, has established its own norms and conventions. But as far as the spoken language, that, you know, it's a great question. What do you teach? And especially what do you teach when you're not a native speaker yourself or just a speaker, right? Like I'm not Sephardic. So, you know, it would make sense for uh, someone who is from Istanbul or from Izmir to teach the variety that they know, right? You would expect nothing uh, but that. Um, it would be natural, right? Um, but then what do you do when you yourself learn the language as a second language in, in some way? Uh, what do you choose? And, you know, I've always, as a linguist, I'm very interested in different dialects and varieties. So this always comes up. Um, but my personal um, variety is more Turkish-based. Um, and I, I think that that has to do with my network. Um, I think that has to do with history. I mean, unfortunately, the varieties of Greece and the varieties of uh, former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia have been almost entirely erased. And that's extremely unfortunate because those varieties have a lot of unique features that aren't preserved in the Turkish variety, right? Um, so we definitely speak about these things in my classes, all different levels they come up, whether they're words or, or just the pronunciation of things. Um, but I, I do see that uh, it's quite common um, as far as what people are learning today, or even some of the textbooks, it's it's more of a, a Turkish-based variety, even recognizing that there's variation in that. Yeah. In our last interview with my father, Isaac Daniel, who's from Salonika, he spoke a little bit about that historical reason, and that the people who are around today who speak Ladino, you know, are the Turkish from Turkey and not from Greece or the Balkans. Um, and also the radio announcer, he talked about Moshe Shaul, who created a sense of standardized Ladino, a little yeah. bit, for, for people who are listening, because that's a, a huge way to diffuse languages through. It's true. And one thing you see, too, is regardless in the United States or elsewhere, you see a lot of dialect contact or variety contact. So, you know, what happens when... Um, these minority varieties of Judeo-Spanish uh, are trying to be preserved or spoken. You know, how much are they being preserved according to uh, the variety in question? All sorts of interesting linguistic phenomena going on. But, um, you know, there are there have been efforts to standardize the language. And we see that um, even at the level of teaching it or, or studying it. Yeah. That, does that make it difficult, do you think, for language learners who are taking your class and then maybe move to a, another level with a different professor? Like, does that create issue in continuity or what is that like? You know, I think it's an opportunity and I see this just in the, you know, <laughs> there are hundreds of millions of speakers of Spanish throughout the world, right? And we see that, I mean, between the Spanish of Argentina and Spain and just anywhere in Latin America, right? Like all the varieties are distinct in, in, in many ways. Um, although mutually intelligible, understandable, right? Um, I think it's an opportunity, though, in the case of Ladino, 
as well as Spanish. It just depends on, you know, how serious a student is and what point. You know, I think that when someone's starting a language, um, like a one-on-one type of introductory course, it might not be the best time to mention all of these features that, you know, Brian loves. You know, there's time. There's a time for everything, right? Um, and as a student progresses and wants to take more classes um, and acquires additional proficiency, I think it's it's it should be done. These conversations can come up and um, even, you know, I've had some chances where I say, hey, where's your family from if you're, you are Sephardic, right? Do you want to start using some of this variety in question? Like, um, it's an, it's a great opportunity for them to kind of see how their family might have spoke the language. Um, so when the time is right, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing. And some of them see that maybe when the time isn't right, you know, we have the Encontros de Aljad every Sunday and you have different speakers, you have different Mustafires and Balavayas, the guests and the hosts speak a different, you know, several varieties of the language. Uh, for the most part, you can understand everybody just with the base that you have. Um, but it's, it's part of what you get. It's part of the richness of the language. It's not just Judeo-Spanish. Here you go. Let's put it down in 500 words. You can do your podcast for years and years and decades because there's so much to cover. Yeah. And I love, <laughs> I love the, like reading or discussing a piece of Ladino text and finding this word that you've never seen or never heard of before. And then, you know, discovering you know, oh, the writer, you know, the author is from this place and it comes from from this part of the world. Um, so I love that part of, you know, the different kinds of Ladino. Yeah, I think using resources, I mean, at Binghamton University right now, I'm, I direct the Ladino lab with my colleague who's a historian, Dina Danon. And, you know, we're a great little team just because between linguists and historian, you know, we have different, we come to the language with different, um, in different ways, but, you know, using, nevertheless, like using authentic material from speakers, um, primary sources, it's just, this is, I mean, it's great to invent new material, but there's a wealth of material that exists in the language already and reading it and deciphering it and discussing it. Um, it provides, I mean, it's, it's a lesson in itself. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite either text or song or proverb in Ladino that you love to teach? That you're like, I'm so excited. This is the week we're going to cover X. You know, I'm not, I never know what to say in regard to my favorite words or whatnot. There's just, uh, or sayings. I mean, there are well clearly thousands of, of sayings and well words <laughs> that much more. Um, but, you know, the cool thing about even that or just the proverbs and anecdotes, these are all passed down, right? So whatever saying I tell you is one that I've heard. And this is so, I mean, this is just folklore in general. She's like, what have you heard? What Joha story is your favorite? Well, it's the one that I heard from so-and-so. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's so much richness that has been passed down. And I think some of the cool things that are being preserved even um, in different ways um, come up, I guess it depends, like who are we talking about? Like if it's for children, one of the things that I love um, um, it's not necessarily like a lullaby, but it's like a children's song. And it's, you know, um, well, really for babies almost, or infants, you know, Chico Minico, 
Um, Chico Minico, Rey de Anico, Alto Ivano, Escribano, Rey de la Mano. And you do that pointing to each of your fingers, right? Chico Minico, your pinky, Rey de Anico, this is the king of the, the ring finger. Es, uh, Alto Ivano, talking about your middle finger, tall and vain. Um, Escribano, the finger, I guess, for writing, the scribe. And then Rey del man, de la Mano, Rey de la Mano, the king of the hand. I mean, and then it continues in different ways, that that little song, um, in, in different ways. So that's just a fun one. Could you sing it a little bit for us? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. It's kind of like what I did, but I'll try to go and just, it's just... Chico Minico, Rey de Anico, Alto Ivano, Escribano, Rey de la Mano. That's how I, you know... Remember, at least in my head, you know, you'll have some variation between singers and speakers and whatnot. And um, that's what, you know, how it's been uh, inscribed in my mind, at least for now. But I've heard some people sing that to uh, their grandchildren. and It's really cool. Um, and it's appropriate for that age, right? But yet again, you know, I, I think about some other things. And they're not just words or sayings because they're just, they're contextualized. Sayings by Proverbs are clearly contextualized in specific moments too. But I think about working with the Rodeslis, right? And, you know, the baño de novia for the, the bride to be and just so much, so much richness in regard to the ceremonies that are not always preserved anymore. But the way that women would um, encourage and glorify the bride to be la novia, it's just beautiful. And that comes out so much in tradition and music. And there's this one song called um, Ansi Dice La Muestra Novia, uh, you know. And this is how we call it for the bride. And it just talks about the bride's body parts and it's very metaphoric and it compares, you know, it's just, um, and si la muestra novia, um, como se llama la cabeza, esto no se llama cabeza, sino toronja de toronjal. And they talk about como se llama la luenga, esto no se llama luenga, sino para de enfornar. When they talk about los dientes, they talk, they don't say they are your, your teeth, they say they are perlas relucientes. This is a lucky guy. He's not just getting your teeth, he's getting perlas relucientes, shiny, beautiful pearls, right? Como se llaman los cabellos, esto no se llama cabellos, sino brillas de labrar. He's just not getting your hair, he's getting your, your luscious golden silver locks, you know, like, wow, this is a beautiful, uh, and it's, you know, it's great also, great way to teach body parts, and, you know, it's really, I mean, this is rich, and, you know, maybe, you know, Men are lucky to even know about this because typically they're not at the Banu de Novia, right? Um, so there's, you know, that type of element too. Um, but then you have liturgical stuff. And I, I've seen this preserved in different ways. Um, I've, even in the United States still, when you have the selling of the misfot, like the auctioning off of honors, when you're about to go up for the tour. And this is, even though women can hear this, like just because of the orthodox nature of Sephardic synagogues, um, you know, they would not participate in the, the auctioning off of honors. But, you know, when you... Sorry, what is the auctioning off of honors? Yes. Yeah, so on, on Shabbat and on holidays, different synagogues or communities would do this in different ways. Um, you can provide a donation to the synagogue to carry out um, an honor, such as going up to the Torah, or maybe even reading a part of the Torah, right? Or maybe even taking off um, some of... Um, the let's see what are they called um but the rimonim which are the uh 
the crown, so to speak, of the top of the Torah, right? So all the different elements that you could participate in, they auction them off in a way, which, you know, on Shabbat, you don't want to talk about money, right? But it's interesting because the the, the Gabai will take notes uh, with folded pieces of paper. So you won't be writing, but you'll fold different papers. It's um, the, the warden of the, the synagogue, right? Um, it's just this rich religious element that in some ways is preserved, but it's it's nice because you say dan por and then you keep going, and, and it's cool because quinientos dan is saying you will give five hundred of some type of currency for the first one is petichatechal, which is from Hebrew to open the doors of the ark. But the story goes that you know they started with quinientos five hundred groshim, which was the lowest currency back in the Ottoman Empire or Turkey, whatnot. Um, but now Kinyantos refers to 500 pennies, so it's only 500. And then you say, Mildan, and you watch people kind of say, no, like they're bidding and they're auctioning and say, no, I want this honor. I want to go open the doors of the, the Torah uh, at the Ark. And so you watch them kind of bid out each other, and it's because they want the honor of doing this. And um, the communities in Seattle and other places do this still. Um, but it's also a great example of something in Ladino um, that in some ways is carried out. So. Anyway, it just depends on who and when and and why. I'll say that custom oftentimes you'll you'll bid on the honor and give it to somebody else. Um, and I've seen this this w- would happen not in Ladino but in English where I grew up near Chicago. And there the woman could could bid. I mean it was a maybe it was an exceptional, but they could bid and give the honor to a male relative um, or friend, um, though the women couldn't do it. But I think, I do know somewhere on the internet there's a recording of somebody doing those auctioning in Ladino, so I'll try to put that in the notes for the show. Yeah, Ike Azos, you know, he, uh, I had the chance to work with him, Hazan Ike Azos, in Seattle. Um, When I was there um, for a while, you know, he definitely taught me a little bit about everything that they do, you know, between that or just let you know between the weeks between Passover and Shavuot. Um, it's not that they're preserving in Seattle, as we know, um, but he might have something online like Azos. It's it's nice to hear of examples too that are both, you know, for the for the lay person for maybe the non-religious the non-religious aspect of the language, because like I come from it from a non-religious lens. So it's nice to know that you know the folklore and the and the the songs and the lullabies resonate, and then also there's a huge, obviously, religious component for a lot of people, and so the religious aspect is really important and and interesting and integral part of the language as well. So thank you for sharing those. What have you seen in terms of change regarding the state of Ladino? Obviously, um, an example that comes to mind for me that you taught me was ekran, which means screen, for example, which I'm sure 500 years ago wasn't in the language. 500 years ago, probably not. But yeah, there's been so many um, opportunities to, you know, the language whatever you call the language, right? Ladino, Judeo, Spanish, or whatnot, has always been a language of contact in contact, right? Its speakers have been in contact for centuries and continue to be in contact. 
um, whether it's with Turkish or French or Arabic or Hebrew or even Spanish or English today, right? Um, so there's been a, there have been a lot of conversations in regard to how do you implement words of te- te- you know technological lexicon words, right? Uh, vocabulary into um, conversation. Um, but yeah, the language is continuously developing, um, leveling out in some ways among the different dialects or varieties of the language. Um, and, you know, we see this even on as people kind of navigate and figure out how do you talk about Zoom in Ladino? You know, how do you go on mute? There's different, you know, um, conversations being had and, and sometimes they take place in real time when everyone tries to figure out what to say just so they could understand each other. A lot of borrowings from different languages continue to happen until eventually people kind of are on the same page and form their own little speech community. Wow. So you're seeing that happening basically in real time. This, I mean, the evolution of the language, you know, you're seeing it in front of you. It's amazing. Do you feel like the pandemic kind of, I don't want to say like the world shutting down, but kind of, do you feel like the world going more digital is what I will say, um, has moved forward Ladino in any way? It's really weird to even say like in the midst of, you know, a pandemic that there's a silver lining concerning the state of Ladino, right? Like how strange. Um, but you know, what it has done is just, it's created a chance for people to, to learn the language. I mean, so often, um, people, you know, write to different speakers or educators of language and they want to learn their language, a new language, right? Language of their family or just an entirely new language in some cases. And there's limited opportunities. They don't live by a Sephardic community. And even if they do, who's the teacher? Um, and so, you know, when everyone kind of started to shift to going online and we saw different opportunities to, to learn the, you know, people start to come together and meet each other and, and form new communities and friendships and partnerships and just, just have a space, a virtual space to, to learn the language as much or as little as they wanted. And something that I, I have seen is just, you know, for whatever it was, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, once a week, you know, provide an escape from everything going on just to learn, learn Ladino and, and not to, you know, pretend like real life isn't happening, you know, it, it was and clearly, and it still is during everything, mm-hmm. but just to have time together to, to, you know, learn from each other in many ways. I always learn from my students, my students learn from me and, and whatnot. It's just been a great, it's been a blessing in many ways. And we see this, you know, words like Renaissance and just movement and revitalization are used quite a bit. Uh, it's an ongoing process, of course, but I definitely think that there have been a lot more interest and opportunities to learn the language for people all over the world and all age groups. And it's extremely important um, at a time like this um, for the language and its speakers. What are your hopes for Ladino moving forward? <laughs> so it's a question that I'm used to in many ways, right? Um, you know, I think that in establishing goals, it's important to be realistic um, and learn from other efforts, other languages. I mean, there are thousands of languages in the world and most are endangered, different degrees, of course. So there's a lot that can be learned (laughs) from um, different um, trials and tribulations, so to speak. Um, 
but in you know every language is different every community is different and clearly that's the same for Ladino you know what I hope though is that speakers and learners can continue to work with each other I hope that I think that one thing that we've accomplished is that speakers around the world know that their language is a language it's a language that is valued, should be valued. Um, I know in the past, a lot of people kind of had, and we're, we're taught essentially to have negative feelings about their jargon. You know, what do they speak? Was this a language? What are they even speaking at home and wanting to shift and switch their languages? I think that we've accomplished, um, or the Sephardi communities around the world have accomplished giving that um, pride in regard to Judeo-Spanish, Ladino, right? Um, and I think that's really important because it's not a dead language. People know that it's a language that's still living. And I hope that people continue to, for the speakers themselves, however you define speaker, whether it's someone who's in their 70s and just, you know, uses the language once in a while or in their 50s and heard the language from their parents. I hope that they use whatever they know to pass it on to younger generations, to use it with their generations, right, and their contacts but also to pass it on to other generations. And that, again, could be sayings or songs or folklore, you know, Joha stories, whatever it may be, pass them on. Um, I think it's important to be realistic in the sense that not every family is going to pass on the language as spoken language. The language already has different properties now, and it's kind of beyond the regular vernacular purposes. But my hope is that speakers continue to pass on their language. And my hope is that for learners, that they continue to take advantage of a variety of opportunities to learn the language and to continue to learn it from different people, um, whether they're, they're actually trained educators or just a speaker that they come across because everyone has something to offer. Um, so those are some of my hopes in regard to the language. I love that. And, and in an ideal world where realism doesn't even matter, <laughs> do you have grand things for, that you yeah. desire for this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would love to see um, a physical community, um, a location where uh, the speakers were all neighbors with each other and, you know, set up shops and kind of the linguistic landscape of the area is clearly Ladino, kind of like, you know, you had once upon a time, not too long ago, right? I mean, Max's father grew up in, in, in such a world where Ladino was the language every day, right? It's a different world, right? And I don't think it's, you can't recreate or, or compare even. But I, you know, in, since we're saying if just realism aside, you know, if, if we could get people to just um, be neighbors and live in a community and just utilize Ladino with uh, their families and their kids, you know, because it's important that, you know, if any children are using the language or learning the language, and there are some cases where parents are trying to pass on something, uh, regards to the language to them. You know, it's important that they just don't have it at home, but also have it to use with their friends, um, you know, at the playground, at school. So that would be ideal, um, even if it's just a group, few group of uh, families. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, intentional Ladino Yeah, I don't think that's, community. I don't think that's like, <laughs> out of, right? you know, out I of mean, it's doable. Everything's I mean, possible. I mean, yeah, and the thing is, too, I mean, for some people, you might even have the opportunity where in some places, especially like, you know, those four, you know, between Seattle and Los Angeles, New York City, or just areas in South Florida, where you have large pockets of Sephardic communities. I mean, you know, it's just, I think people get in their head and, and this happens 
among all uh, all minority languages in the country is just you know just in the U.S. And clearly, you could extrapolate this into different ways with other countries. But you know, kids and families want to often teach their um, children the language of the country, which you know they associate with English. Some believe that learning other languages could be a stigma. Um, you know, their beliefs are based on ideologies and ex- real lived experiences, um, but also a number of myths, right? I mean, learning a language and keeping your your language of your family is a bonus, right? It should be additive. It's not subtractive. But nevertheless, I mean, you can, you know, if you could find a group of nonos or nonas, papus, babas, get your grandmothers and grandfathers uh, to move and the ones who really could still speak the language and uh, just, you know, compensate them nicely, maybe with the great Sephardic cuisine for their linguistic savvy and have them, um, you know, really take care of the language element. You'd have everyone contributing in different ways. So yeah, it is possible, but it's ambitious. Is as someone who's very aware and in, tapped into all the goings on, um, what are you excited about that's coming up? Or what are you excited about in the Ladino world that's going on right now? Aside, obviously, from Ladino Lab and everything at Binghamton. <laughs> I'm excited about this podcast. <laughs> that's a good start, right? Um, because it's, well, you know, like I mentioned before, it's new, it's innovative. It's, it's an, again, like, it's not enough to just teach the language to people. Um, it's really important to have opportunities to use it or discuss it in different ways, right? So whether it's a podcast, whether it's someone creating a new work um, or, you know, just speaking about the language somewhere. Um, You know, for me, I'm always doing different projects related to Ladino and we'll continue to do that. But I have some collaborations coming up with some of even uh, my former students, which I'm really excited about. We're we're starting to work on different things because uh, I think the partnerships um, and collaborations that, I hope to have with some of the people that I've uh, met over the years can lead to exciting new projects that continue to just move forward. Adelante, um, be the language. So, Could you tell us a little bit about the interview program that you host? Well, um, the Encontros de Aljad, which are just your Sunday meetups, essentially, was actually created also... um, at the start of the pandemic, and it was spearheaded by the Benvenistas in Argentina, uh, Marcelo and Diana. Um, and it's almost like a talk show every Sunday around noon Eastern time. Um, and you have your balabai, your hosts, who gets to invite a musafir, a musafira, uh, a guest or various, uh, based on a different topic. And we have about 13 partnering groups or institutions that work with the Benvenistas and we all rotate, alternate every every week. And at this point, there's been about 84, 85 different programs, 85 weeks of content, right? Um, they usually last an hour. And, and the great thing is they are entirely in Ladino, um, almost entirely anyway. And the wonderful thing is that if you're not there live, uh, these encontros are recorded and they are available on YouTube. So it's a rich resource among a variety of other resources. And it's nice. And I mean, they run the gamut. You know, I did a program a couple months ago about um, Sephardic life in Zimbabwe, 
which has you know a number of connections clearly to the Rodesli group and, and whatnot. But nevertheless, there's just a range of speakers and hosts and topics, and I'm just one of those players in that um, initiative. But it's it's been a very pleasant experience again for people to kind of um, speaker or learner to just log in once a week and just see what's on the Ladino talk show for the day. <laughs> how do how do people access those interviews, the talk show? Mm-hmm. So um, if it's after the fact, just going to YouTube and Contro de Alcan. Um, but if it's beforehand. Um, I have to send you the link. Uh, it's you know it's it's advertised every week on you know it's advertised in different ways. Isafarad, um, which is kind of a Sephardic news bulletin, also out of Argentina, does a lot of promotion. Um, a bunch of the partners we also often just um, put the the, the reclamas, the flyers every week on our social media pages. Um, and then Ladino Comunita for those who are members or are familiar with that forum. Uh, it's also advertised every week there. Uh, but, you know, to your point, there might be people who are interested about all these resources. So if there could be a follow up somehow, um, you know, um, to get people interested and to, you know, to have a wider range uh, of viewers and participants, that would be great. Yeah. And that's, I, that's what we want. That's the goal. For, yeah. And yeah, and we hope this podcast will serve as uh, one more resource. Mm-hmm and kind of a, a place where people can find additional resources as well. Yeah, I think we're coming up towards the end of our time, but we do want to ask you about what you're working on and anything that you want to share with our audience. Yeah, for those interested um, I am in following along to some of the activities that I um, direct or spearhead, um, I'm on Twitter, at Ladino Linguist. Um, or just through email, ladinolinguist at gmail.com. Um, but for now, um, apart from just my teaching and research at my university, my research is really focused on a lot of the topics that we discussed today um, regarding the Ladino language and all of its variation and richness. But other than that, you know, the teaching opportunities or just the partnerships that I've been working on are something that I want to continue to do. And um, I'm sure there will be more uh, more to come. Mm-hmm. We hope so too. We we also look forward to all the great work that you and your team and all your uh, fellow Ladino linguists um, will put out and arrange in the future. Yeah, we're so excited. Yeah, and yeah. it's really nice too that you you know you have your personal experience which led you to Ladino and then you have these this field work that you're doing that's connecting you to different communities all around the world and then you have this digital f- platform in which you're doing the Encontro Al-Had and then you you know I feel like you're integrating Ladino in every facet of life it it, it sounds like and it's really exciting to to connect with you and, and to be a part of your journey so thank you. I want people to learn and just connect in any way possible. Um, hopefully I could, um, one of the projects that I'm working on right now is in regards to the documenting Judeo Spanish, mm. um, website, which is just documenting Judeospanish.com. It's for anyone who wants to learn Soletrera, which is the cursive variety of Ladino, which was used for centuries 
and it's a Hebrew-based alphabet, uh, which is challenging to read, but um, for learners anyway, but it opens up so many doors in regard to communication and correspondence that Sephardim had with each other. So it's a pretty cool platform that um, um, I was able to spearhead. And I, I should note actually that uh, a Solutreo font um, is going to be available relatively soon. It's uh, These things take a lot of time actually to, to get them out uh, into the public, but it will be another resource. Um, we are partnering with a, a large organization that is going to release the fonts for free to anybody who wants to download it. And it should be up, you know, it should be uh, able to function on any device. So it's also just another tool. Uh, you know, this alphabet was never used on computers, obviously, but we're bringing Ladino in different ways into the 21st century. And this is one small way to do that as well. That's so cool. Can I ask you really quickly going off of that is, do you have to be able to read Hebrew or understand Hebrew in order to understand Solotreo? Like, is it obviously it's not Hebrew because it's Ladino. So it's, but, it, but it's using the Hebrew alphabet. So would you, how, I guess, what do you need to know in order to access Solotreo? So uh, my answer will be ideally some Ladino, right? Because if you're going to try to read Ladino, um, knowing what the words are saying would be really important. I've taught a number of workshops um, on Solotreo, uh, even online. And um I have no prerequisite as far as ability to read Hebrew. So I've had work with a number of people who have no experience reading Hebrew. This is their first Hebrew-based alphabet that they're ever learning. And I should know that if you know Hebrew, you will not, that won't get you really anywhere with this because it's so different. And, and Max, you work with Solitaire documents, right? It's its yeah. own, um, basically it's, it's almost its own system. Oh, I'm so glad I asked. Here we are. <laughs> its own system. Um, and... But yeah, you can learn that from scratch. But again, as if you know, I've had some people who are just elementary level Ladino and who want to learn Solotreo right away because again, it's just it's a rich opportunity to kind of access this treasure trove of material. But at the same time, like you know, if, if you're reading it aloud and you're trying to make sense of the words, if you know Ladino or at least a good amount of Ladino, then you can kind of that that will facilitate your reading, right? Um, but um, it's 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 one of the casualties, unfortunately, of the language in many ways because it's it's you know it's really not preserved and it is not utilized by speakers or writers today. And it's just it's unfortunate when a community doesn't have access to its own history, right? And you know we don't as much as we appreciate the educators, whether they're historians or linguists, who you know help us decipher these materials. I mean, this is this is your language, right? This is. The Sephardic language, you know, you want your people to have access to these materials. So in different ways, um, you know, just to create opportunities to learn how to read and write and decipher um, is something that could hopefully just give speakers of the language or descendants of those who spoke the language access to their own materials and their own family. Awesome. Yeah, and hopefully as it will be online, everyone, regardless mm -hmm. of background too, will be able to access and then we can all learn Ladino. <laughs> yeah. 
Beautiful. Thank you so much for your yeah, time. Yeah, merci mucho. Merci mucho. We're so, pleasure, pleasure. so yeah. grateful. Really, what a, what yeah. a pleasure. So we just talked to Dr. Brian Kirshen about his experiences with Ladino and all his amazing stories. And I guess I should say a little bit about how I know Brian, if it wasn't super clear in the interview, is that he led UC Ladino, which is like a graduate student-led reading and study group at UCLA. Um, and he graduated before I came. And I kind of took over a couple years later as the head of UC Ladino. And so I kind of just inherited all this wisdom and all these people that knew Brian. But I hadn't actually met him for a while. But his reputation preceded yeah. um, me actually meeting him. He's fantastic. It was, so, it was so nice, you know, hearing about his experience and, and really seeing how the language has evolved and how transmission has evolved especially in the time of technology and, you know, a time in which everyone's been so isolated but also strangely connected. Yeah, and that kind of feels very natural for Ladino and for a diasporic language. The internet and uh, virtual connections seem very natural fit because it's already spread out and those connections are just being realized through the internet. Like, they're already there. Yeah. And then you just have various different classes and seminars and meetings and web forums and all these other things kind of just making clear what is already there. That's true, and I love how accessible it's become, too. You know, obviously, there are courses that you can pay for, but he mentioned a lot of resources that are free and accessible. And really, this Something he touched on was the idea of ownership, language ownership, um, which was a fascinating concept. Um, but the idea, too, of, of, you know, people being able to access their own language that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to do, especially considering the, you know, endangered status of, of Ladino in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, accessibility is such an important part especially for, yeah, like these endangered languages that sometimes feel very inaccessible. Like you don't know anybody who speaks it or maybe the people that you know are not around anymore. There's not a lot of good, there's no, no great textbooks. There are a couple. Um, and universities don't really teach this language. Not and yet. Even, yeah. <laughs> um, some do sometimes. I don't want to say they don't at all. Yeah, it's it fast. I love to something that was really interesting is that he talked about, you know, he's not Sephardic. He doesn't have necessarily a personal connection, but he feels this connection to this language. He feels this connection so strongly that he learned it, became fluent in it, created a community around it, and and is in large part responsible for, you know, continuing um, and, and teaching it. And I think that's something really beautiful and and particularly important because I don't think that you need to necessarily have a blood connection to something to feel connected and to be able to appreciate 
something, especially a language, and then to be able to share that knowledge. I think, you know, that that's something that's really beautiful about this language too. And any language really is, yeah. is where there's a will, there's a way, and, mm-hmm. and you can learn it and, and share it, and, and it evolves. And I think even, you know, Brian's quote-unquote outsider position, even though he's very much an insider, but just as a someone without Sephardic heritage— um, I think it brings a really important perspective and positionality, which is that there's not sometimes there's the baggage of your heritage. Mm. And you know, you saw with my dad last time, people get very invested and have very strong opinions. Yeah. And sometimes it can create friction. But from this other perspective, you kind of are open to so many different things. And I think we saw that and we heard that in Brian's interview. Yeah. Absolutely. About bringing different perspectives and different approaches. Um, so in that sense, I'm very glad that we have somebody. An kind expert. Of, yeah, who um, can see that and can help us see that. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not, not immune <laughs> to, the, to those patterns either. That's, that's something that's interesting. I, I didn't even think of it like that. I like that you bring that to the table. Something that I also loved that he talked about was, you know, when I had asked him how he's meeting these people, you know, he started with his field work and and then it became like a ripple effect of, of one person suggesting another person suggesting another person. And I love that he talked about the sense of community that he felt through, you know, going for, say, a 15-minute interview, turning into a two-hour dinner. Little party. Little party. There we go. <laughs> Um, with all of the different Sephardic foods that he talked about, which sounded very yummy, which... um... Yeah, and I think Brian's experiences and my own um, show that people want to talk about this. And like Brian was saying, people were often shamed for this language or felt shameful. You know, Brian called it jargon, which was one of kind of the self-deprecating nicknames for the Ladino language. I think these 15-minute kind of questionnaires turning into two-hour-long parties or or whatever. Um, Yeah, shows that people have a lot to say, and often more than they think. Mm. And that's, you know, from my own experience, when interviewing people for my research, it's like, oh, I don't really know that much. I wasn't really that involved in X, Y, or Z. And then they have all these amazing stories that give such great insight. It's true. And I also want to welcome listeners to, you know, be inspired by Brian's excitement at learning something that isn't necessarily something that he feels like is his own, even though I think he's made it his own in in such a a beautiful and and really inspiring way. It inspired me a lot. Um, And, you know, to really promote people to explore different languages or explore Ladino, even if they don't necessarily have roots or have, you know, the the biological connection, whatever mm-hmm. that means, you know, they have this, if, if you have the desire to learn, I think that it's, there are more resources that are available now and it's becoming really accessible. And feel free to reach out to us too, if you have any questions or suggestions or things that you are interested in about the language. Um, you're welcome to contact us as well. And, and, you know, we're learning as well. So it's it's a beautiful opportunity to 
to grow and explore together and you know this and and to keep this language alive really and and to watch it evolve mm-hmm. and to be a part of the evolution too Brian um, said a couple of words in Ladino with um, without translating them so just for clarity's sake, um, mansevo or manseva is basically youth. So it's like the the younger generation. So when Brian was saying that he had been the mansevo and is now passing on the torch, that's what he was referring to in case that was not clear. And then also the baño de novia is the... It's a bridal shower. Bridal shower, thank you. <laughs> and baño means bath. You know, but it does involve water. Yeah. Sometimes they go to the, the mikvah. Yeah, oh, the mikvah. What? I mean, in like Rhodes community, they do it at the beach. That sounds fantastic. Because if you're on an island, you're gonna go to the beach. That's true. <laughs> Why not? I see. I didn't know that. We're all learning. We're all mm. in this learning, learning adventure together. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really important about Brian's role is how he came to Ladino. Like, that aspect, I think, is really important, especially if we're thinking about Ladino as a bridge. And what the way I'm thinking about it here is a bridge from people with, an like, a personal family connection um, and bridging outside of that to mm-hmm. people without that and making that connection. And I think that's one of the ways to help this language remain relevant and alive and taught and learned is expanding beyond just the heritage community. One thousand percent. And, you know, it's, I mean, sounds like a simple answer. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, welcome everybody. Mm. But it can be touchy for some people, including myself. It's like, okay, then what happens Mm -hmm. if there are no people with that connection left? Mm. It is, it is pressure. It is I won't speak for us, but it is precious for us. And also, we want to share it and we want it to blossom and be be held by every be be able to be held by everybody. Yeah. Brian's also very sensitive to being not Sephardi. He mentioned it a couple times in his interview. Oh. Um that you know, he said something like, Well, it's important that you and Ivy that Ma- you and Max mm-hmm. are doing this as, you know, Sephardim, that he says. Yeah. And I think that's important. I think it's to have people from that heritage involved in the work. But obviously, Brian has a huge role in this work right now in Ladino, you know, in 2022, in the 21st century. And I think he approaches it with the real grace and understanding and appreciation I think that's a good model yeah. for how to do this. Yes. I definitely think coming with grace and appreciation and understanding. I also felt weird, to be honest, when he was saying, you know, I I was appreciative but also made me feel like like a little bit of imposter syndrome because I come from such a di- – you know, I'm not just Sephardic. I'm not just mm-hmm. one thing. I have a lot of identities that I – that I – am and that yeah. I live with and that you know and so to to be um put on that not in like a pedestal but to be like put as like oh box. you are this and therefore you are have these obligations have, not have not obligations now. but you are entitled to do mm. this I got it made me feel like 
uh, am, uh, y- you know, it, truthfully. Like, Is it like expectations? Well, I felt like a little bit like I, I wanted to be like, well, I'm not just a Sephardic, but you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I'm not just that, like, I have so yeah. many other identities and I'm a lot more intersectional than just one thing. Obviously, this podcast is surrounding Ladino, um, which is obviously the language of the Sephardic Jews, but it was it was interesting to feel like, ooh, suddenly, like, am I allowed to be doing this? Like, who is allowed to be doing, like, who, like, what is that in, like, imposter syndrome in myself? What is that, um, like, who has ownership? Who is allowed, quote-unquote, to do anything? And also, like, how, obviously, like, you know, mm-hmm. I am allowed to be doing this. I am doing this. But but also, like, how do you maintain intersectionality yeah. and respect and understanding and appreciation versus appropriate you know it brought up a lot of that what you're saying reminds me and you know i'm not equating them but you know people who like my dad who's like we have to speak english or we have to speak Mm -hmm. greek Mm -hmm. um it's like i don't want to be known as just like a jewish person Mm -hmm. as you know if you're speaking ladino in greece it would you it would identify you Mm -hmm. as a jew and i think the same thing is like if you're like the Ladino person or the you know the Sephardic studies person, then it's you. There's a risk of getting pigeonholed into right. that. It's like well, there are other parts of us, right? Um, and yeah, part of this podcast is to contextualize Ladino speakers and not isolate them or yeah, like to- romanticize them as these like unique creatures who, like, their whole <laughs> life is just, like, lounging around in the yeah. Mediterranean sun and thinking about Spain oh my God, sounds all like the time. Dream. Yeah, I mean, actually, that sounds pretty <laughs> that sounds nice. great. <laughs> no, but, yeah, <laughs> it's not, it's not about fetishizing or yeah. exoticizing or, you know, any of that. It's literally about connecting and yeah. being intersectional and being – because we are intersectional. You know, like, there is yeah. a – And to make Ladino – to keep it f- special – Mm-hmm. But also to kind of normalize it. Yeah, like sun-dried tomatoes. Yeah. Just I don't know. <laughs> Just, it's like a Mediterranean. Oh. Thinking of sunshine in Spain. Oh. Special. Like, All right. You know, it was just a joke that was in my brain, and it sounded so funny in my brain, and then it came out. It wasn't funny. <laughs> I also loved um, when Brian sang the songs about. Oh my god! So so cute. Yeah. Number one, so cute, but also really telling. I feel like of the mm, I want to say like folkloric or metaphoric virtue of the language that I think is is found throughout. And I love that. Even like when he was talking about like. You know, los dientes brillantes, like the 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 yeah. shining teeth, the shining pearls, rather than saying teeth, like. And the different names for the fingers. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a playful language. Definitely. And among other things, but I love having examples of the different kind of cadences, the different ways that this language can be used. And yeah, of course, 
It's a children's language, too, in addition to everything else that Ladino is. And What do you mean by that? I mean, it's a, kid, it's a language that, like, babies were raised in. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. It was so wonderful interviewing with Brian. I'm so happy that he came on. Yeah, and if you're interested in several of the things that he spoke about, like the auctioning of the meets vote or the documentary he was involved with or the classes that he teaches, all of those we will link in the show notes, which is kind of the show description on whatever platform you are listening to this on. As always, if you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at elpontepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at elpontepodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon. La palabra va a muchos caminos. Words travel many paths.